Do you think of yourself as a minimalist? As a what? A minimalist. Never. Never, never, never. No, I mean, I, I, I understand that, that for people who are journalists and music historians that, you know, ABC and Ravel and Satie and Kirkland and some other people are Impressionists and Schoenberg, Berg and Maven are Expressionists and myself and Terry Riley and Glass and I suppose now Harvard Paird and the early John Adams and other people are minimalists. And all these terms are taken from painting and sculpture. Composer Steve Reich was the featured guest at the Indiana State University Annual Contemporary Music Festival in Terre Haute in October of 2009. I spoke with Mr. Reich in an open session at the festival about music, life, religion, philosophy, and much more. Welcome to Profiles. I'm Kerry Boyce. By way of a brief, or dare I say it, a minimal introduction to the music of Steve Reich, here is the third movement of three movements for orchestra, played by the London Symphony, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. The voices are constantly doubled with woodwinds. Good, uh, good trick. It's an old one. Bach does it. Must be right, right? Um, so there's a, a, usually there's a, a tenors of flutes and octave above, and the women often have clarinets in unison. Two marimbas and two vibes, which you certainly heard, and uh, four pianos. I hesitated, but then I thought, no, got to do it. Stravinsky does it. Yeah, there you go. Good precedence. Uh, actually, it's in music for 18 musicians way back in 1976. But anyway, when they, when they get going, the piece begins to be really change. That's when things get, you know, things that I hadn't done before happen. Actually, the opening reminds me of music in 18 musicians. Well, it actually reminds me of the desert music. Dun, dun, music. Dun, 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 and then, I mean, everybody thinks, you know, what? I can't, you know. Uh, and that, I, I wanted to do that. I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to do something I know how to do, and I'm going to enjoy myself, and um, let's see what happens. And lo and behold, when the four pianos started to come in, things happened that I hadn't done before. So I think um, there was a mentality, particularly I think in the 60s and 70s, where you, know, you really had to do something new. And if it had been done before, you know, don't do it. Uh, that's a pretty uh, unhealthy advice in life and in music, I think. You do what you do, and uh, it may turn out to be new, or it may just turn out to be a good rerun of something that you've done before, but it's so well done that it really doesn't, uh, that's what matters. Can we talk a little bit about your choice of text and how that, how that sure. came about? Uh, you, you are where your mind is, or you are where your thoughts are. You are where that's, your thoughts are. That's, uh, that's kind of a Zen 
Yeah. No, it's a Jewish thought from Rabbi Nachman in Beslot, yeah. So it was adapted by that? Excuse me? Yeah, perhaps it was adapted because I've, re- I've read it in several Zen philosophies. Well, I don't think Rabbi Nachman was reading Zen. I, in fact, I'm absolutely sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he died at the age of 38. He had barely enough time to do what he did. Now, the Hasidic movement was uh, very, very remarkable and uh, uh, worth knowing about, even if you're not Jewish. Uh, and uh, he was a very, uh, the most um, magnetic and the most, uh, uh, we would say today, far out, uh, but also very practical. He thought you should spend an hour a day talking to God in your own language, which would mean English, and then do the prescribed prayers as well. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Kerry Boyce, visiting with composer Steve Reich. We'll be back after this. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Let's say you take a poem. Uh, there, there once was a fellow named Blair, or whatever it might be, that has some sort of narrative trajectory that spins itself out into time. You actually, it seems to me, have a tendency to take smaller pieces of that, like holding out prism up to a light and break it down. Right. Yeah. Uh, I hope that there's a kind of connection between these texts for sure, and I think there is, but it's, you know, it would be, um, it would be hard to make a, a clear-cut narrative. Um, and uh, as you mentioned the piece when we were backstage, Proverb, which is from Wittgenstein, um, how small a thought it takes to fill a whole life. What I was thinking about was the idea of canon. That was a small thought. And it sure has <laughs> me through my life. Uh, yeah, I, I seem to go for um, aphoristic uh, statements that uh, lend themselves... I mean, once you've said these things, well, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, how long are you, is it going to take you to set a text like that? Well, so variations form immediately su- suggested itself because it needs to be redone or repeated in some way. So that lent, it has lent itself to me. I think the most discursive uh, text is Tehillim, where the, t- the texts are pretty good long you know, sentences in, in, in Hebrew. Psalms. Yeah, part of four different psalms, yes. And there the melodies are more uh, traditionally melodic. Uh, here there are more fragments of melodies and how they're, they're dealt with. You're absolutely right. Can I ask you then about the connection, say, between your religious background and the texts you sure, choose? Absolutely. Or is there a division between the artist and the man? Or? No, 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 no. Even if you want to, you can't do it. <laughs> you may try. Um, there was an American poet, Charles Olson, who said, we do not grow older, we stand more revealed. I think that's a good line. In any event, uh, I, I uh, was brought up uh, reform, uh, which means I didn't know anything about, I couldn't tell an Allah from the Bay. Um, and um, I got involved, as many people did in my generation in the 1960s, with Hatha Yoga, physical yoga, and Pranayama, the uh, Indian breathing exercises, which helped me to stop smoking without even trying. You know, first you're nauseated at lunch, and then you're nauseated at dinner, and then you're just nauseated. <laughs> so uh, stop smoking. And uh, I did some Southern Buddhist meditation, Northern Buddhist meditation, Transcendental meditation, uh, all of which were quite positive and uh, very helpful for uh, someone of my metabolism. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I think about 1974, I felt something's missing. And maybe it's in my own backyard, and I don't even know what's in my own backyard. So I made some phone calls and did some adult education and uh, began reading the Torah in its annual cycle, and uh, 
began gradually observing the Sabbath. Uh, you know, the phone machine's on Friday night, sundown till Saturday night, sundown, etc., etc., and changing my eating habits, and it all felt very affirmative. Well, if you begin to do this, you at some point you're going to, I mean, if you're a composer, you're going to want to bring this into your music. So in 1981, about six or seven years after this began, I thought, I want to, I, you know, I've used the voice in drumming and in music for 18 musicians to sound like an instrument. Uh, and now, what if the singers just, you know, sang words, like singers sing words, right? Uh, and, uh, and why not a Hebrew text? Which one? Well, the most musical one is the Psalms. And the extra plus is that while if you go into a synagogue in America or in Europe, uh, and you hear the Torah or the prophets chanted. That chant is is a traditional uh, musical tradition which is alive and goes back pretty far. And if you hear Yemenite Jews uh, or Baghdadi Jews or any of the uh, Jews living in Israel and also other parts of the world from a Sephardic, from a Middle Eastern background, you hear an even more ancient tradition. But Psalms, the tradition for Psalms has been lost. And in the West, the Yemenite Jews are the only Jews on earth who really are continuously doing an ancient tradition on Psalms. And I'm not a Yemenite Jew, clearly. So I was free to compose without a superego sitting on my shoulder saying it goes that way. Uh, so what you hear in Tanalim is no Jewish melodic content whatsoever. It's, you know, I deserve the credit and I deserve the blame. Yourself as a minimalist? As a what? Minimalist? Oh, never. Oh, <laughs> never, never, never. No, I mean, I, I, I understand that, that for people who are journalists and music historians, that, you know, Debussy and Ravel and Satie and Kirkland and some other people are impressionists and Schoenberg, Berg and Babin are expressionists and myself and Terry Riley and Duplass and I suppose now Arvo Paird and the early John Adams and other people are minimalists. And all these terms are taken from painting and sculpture, and they're applied from that field. I think it was Michael Nyman in the case of minimalism applied to, to uh, music. Uh, the, the, the minus is that uh, visual arts sit there and they don't change. We're an art in time. We are related to film. We are related to video. We're certainly related to dance. But visual arts is a kind of stretch. Nevertheless, there is something, I mean, I'd be certainly one to admit it, between, you know, looking at Monet and listening to Debussy, there's just something there, you know. Uh, there's something, if you look at the Nolde or Kirchner or the German Expressionist painters and you listen to, you know, uh, five pieces for orchestra, Schoenberg or what have you. And um, if you look at Saul Witt, early pieces, um, or... Um, uh, 
Frank Stella, early paintings. Um, and you listen to uh, uh, piano phase or pieces of wood or clapping music. You'd say there's something. And I think what it is is that people who are alive at a certain time, you know, if you got your antenna up, you're just going to get the signals. And it comes out in ways that it's hard to uh, express, but they are a product of a certain time and a certain place. In mentioning to a few people that I was coming here to speak with you, I collected a few questions along the way, and some elementary school students from this area also had some intriguing questions. So, okay. how do you become famous? <laughs> you don't think about it. Uh, well, I guess you know. Who knows? I mean, I think you have to ask an awful lot of people who are a lot more famous than I. I mean, I. I, I, I I think a naive audience like the school children you're... you're, you're uh, no, that came from my ensemble. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> naive elder These people. These are pros. <laughs> okay, well, uh, a, an honest question from anybody uh, is basically... I think most people who are at a concert just have a good ear for what's happening, whether they're trained musicians or whether they're not, if they just like, like music and they want to come listen to it. And you can't really fool them. And... Um, as time progresses, um, you know, if you're, if you're fortunate, and, and there are obviously things that work that we don't understand all the time in our lives. Do you think about marketing, the business aspects of the branding of Steve Reich? Uh, well, certainly, um, I mean, in terms of reality, um, in 1974, I was in Germany and I met uh, Dr. Rudolf Werner, who was a producer of Deutsche Gramophone and produced the Schachhausen at the time and said, he would like to produce, you know, drumming. And I thought, wow, you know, where do I sign? Uh, well, it happened, and actually it was more, it was like a three, three LP box set of drumming and six pianos and music from Allen Instruments, Voices and Organ, which was, I think, one of the, the, the first multi-track recording of, quote, classical music that Deutsche Gramophone ever made. And I had to call a pop producer in to run the board, and the classical guy looked over his shoulder. And he later took over for Music for 18 Musicians. Well, that, to make a long story short, came out in numerical order and sold, you know, not very many records and had to sort of be argued with the man who ran, ran Deutsche Gramophone in New York to just release it in America. So the next time around, uh, I was still working with this guy in Germany and we recorded Music for 18 Musicians in a pop studio in Paris on the old ECM recording. asks, are you running out of ideas? <laughs> Sometimes I think so. Uh, but I've thought that way all my life. <laughs> um, uh, some pieces are better than others. 
Um, no question about it. I mean, I feel that way about my, what I've done and what other people have done. Um, somebody asked something like that this morning. A lot, of, a lot of what happens to me is since I don't write for the orchestra or fixed ensembles, even the string quartet, I say, well, I can't use the string quartet because it's missing the other viola and the other cello. I need these pairs, so why not have two or three string quartets? So that is a kind of source of new ideas. It's like, what is the ensemble? Who's playing? What instruments are involved here? So what are you doing now, for example? This piece was amplified, but it wasn't really manipulated electronically. Oh, no, you mean you are variations? Uh-huh. Oh, no, that's just, there's amplification on the voices and I think the woodwinds and um, maybe some generally on the strings. The percussion is acoustic. Uh, basically, after uh, Three Tales, which is a video opera I did with Beryl Carrot, my wife, an incredible video artist, I had done The Cave, I'd done Different Trains, I'd done City Life, done uh, then Three Tales, and I just felt one more sample and I'm going to get sick. So uh, I just started writing instrumental and vocal music, and I have been doing that continuously until uh, I finished quite a number of pieces, and now I thought, like, <laughs> I've got to refuel, and I think I really needed pre-recorded voices. Mm-hmm. So um, I think anybody who's involved in, in doing anything creative has to be attuned to what it is they need to keep their metabolism going. Did you enjoy the multimedia um, experience? Yes, absolutely. But it's very, very different, very uh, time-consuming, very laborious, very labor-intensive trimming samples, uh, adjusting them, or figuring out how to modulate from keys you would never go because people are speaking in a way that forces you to go to keys that you would normally not go to because you want to make sense out of the words. Yeah, I think uh, they're, they're very different ways of working. And as I said, I think the important thing is to know when to say basta and go where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. These are actually related. Is it fun to play music, and do you get stage fright? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a couple of other people have been curious about your daily life. Like, Can you briefly take us through a day in the life of Steve Reich? Um, breakfast on the late side? I, I mean, the answer is no, uh, because uh, they vary a lot. But I mean... Uh, well, I will say this, that I mean, probably if you took all my music and laid it end to end, I probably 95% of it would have been written between 12 noon and 12 midnight. Hmm. So, do you have hobbies? I mean, what do you do when you're not doing this? Well, I may be running errands. That seems to be the biggest part of my life. I don't know about one thing. I'm going to own a house, you know. Like that. I'd like to ask you if in your experience you've found audiences or listeners People you've run across have some misconceptions about what it is you do, you do or your music? Well, I mean, I don't ask them. I mean, and they, they usually, you know, people who come up usually say nice things. I mean, what, 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 can you rephrase that? No, it's sort of a generic interview question. <laughs> is, is there <laughs> any, right. any misconception about what you do? You could go into a coffee shop anywhere. I, I don't know if Terra Hall or not, but, you know, and, and hear about it. I mean, you hear the fifth grand American chair that I talked about. Uh, does that make Bach a sellout? You know, um, Chuck Berry said, "Any old way you use it." I think that's true. I think that the the, the, the model is to is to produce music which um, will survive whether you've got the score open and you're studying it, and you're really seeing how it's put together, or you're doing the dishes and it's on the background, or you've got your iPod on and you're taking your chances in traffic. Uh, uh, I just think it, you know it's, it's got to have, like we say, legs um, and. That's what I, you know, when I'm composing, I throw a lot of stuff away. And I think it's, you know, I like it today, it sounds great, you know, how is it tomorrow, how is it a week from, you know, now? 
And um, sometimes, you know, a week later, we're saying, yeah, I'm black. No way. So, um, uh, I, that's the best I can do for your question. We have another question, and we we'll just one second here. Okay, and I was just wondering if there's any uh, genre or song style that you hate, like you don't like listening to at all. Oh, good question. Well, you know, uh, in, in, in Judaism, there's a thing called Lashon Hara, uh, evil tongue. And we're all uh, guilty of, um, of you know, speaking badly about other people. Uh, and Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who we were talking about earlier, said, always try to find the good in somebody. I mean, it's real easy to put anybody down. And, you know, present company included, for sure. So... Um, I just would rather pass on that. Sure, there's lots of things that I, I don't care to listen to and, uh, and whatnot, but why dwell on it? I'd rather talk you know, about how much I love Stravinsky and how much I love Bartok and how much I love Periton, how much I love John Coltrane, because I don't know as the other is very useful in any sense of the word useful. I think it's something we experience and we shouldn't lie to ourselves and we should be realistic about it. And there are great chunks of the musical repertoire which are made by geniuses that I, I mean, I, I, have, I don't listen to hardly any music from Haydn to Wagner. Because really, I've learned more from music prior to 1750 and from Debussy onwards. But that's an idiosyncratic, you know, fact about my life, and you know, it certainly doesn't cast any negative light on, you know, on any of those composers. They're all, you know, fantastic geniuses. One of our elementary school students asks, "Do you like to listen to your own music?" Yes. <laughs> And I would caution anybody who's writing music themselves and doesn't to scratch their head. <laughs> I was just wondering. I'm just wondering where you are. Where are you? I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, thank you. When your visual aid is here. I was just wondering, do you use everyday experiences as, as uh, inspiration for any of your pieces? Do I use everyday experiences as part of my. You know, I just I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I suspect, you know, they, they, I mean, sometimes I'm in the car and something, I'm thinking about a piece in my head, you know, and uh, it may be useful and I'll try it and it may or may not work out. But I think you probably meant things that happened that had nothing to do with it. I'm trying to fast, you know, go through memories and I'm not coming up with anything, but it seems like a real, a real possibility and uh, certainly something that people should be open to and I'll try to trying to remain as open to it as I can. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think in a larger sense, it has a huge influence. Um, how could you have uh, the three-penny opera from a guy who lived in Brazil today? It would be ridiculous. I mean, it would be an imitation. Kurt Weill lived in the Weimar Republic in the 20s in Germany with cabaret bands and that kind of instrumentation, that kind of singing, and he's telling us about his time and his place. He's the honest reporter. It's not so much everyday events, it's just sort of like, you know, you're swimming in the water and you don't know too much about the water, but without the water, you'd be dead. So, me too. Are there current composers or artists who really intrigue you now, today, and poor? Yeah, sure. Uh, in Europe, uh, I think, for me, Arvo Paert is the most interesting composer alive. In this country, I'm very interested and personally very close to uh, David... Lang and Michael Gordon and Julie Wolf of the Bang and a Can group. Um, I admire a lot, a lot of things that Louis Andreessen has done. I like, uh, you know, Shaker Loops and other early pieces of John Adams, good friend. 
Um, there's a young man by the name of Nico Muley. He's more like your age, a little bit older, in New York, who's done some remarkable things. Album called Mother Tongue You Can Steal, along with everything else that you steal all the time, don't you? So, and uh, in, in the short answer, I guess that's it. One of the high school students asks, is it hard to make a living as a composer? And yes, yes. Uh, I think I was uh, 30, 36 or so when I, when I actually didn't have to do something else to, to pay the rent. And that was only because I had an ensemble and went and started going to Europe, and not because the Europeans have some, you know, je ne sais quoi. They have state support of the arts. They have a lot of tax money. You, know, you, live, in, you live in London, you've got to pay $150 a year for your radio. You don't like it? Move. I mean, if they did that in the United States, I think, you know, you have the Boston Tea Party. So, um, I work in public radio, and I'd love to have that. <laughs> so if they haven't made your pledge, please, here's my plug. I'm Kerry Boyce. You've been listening to Profiles, with an October 2009 interview with composer Steve Reich. Thank you for listening. support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.